This is The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing, and please rate us on iTunes. Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The Big Electron. The Big Electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Of course you feel it. Now, what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to The Big Electron here in KCAU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening, and thanks for listening if you're listening on our podcast. Um, my name is Jackie. I'm Adam. And, I, and I'm on it. I'm on a heat I'm on a heat <laughs> Fun with microphones. <laughs> I'm on a heat Hi, <laughs> Anahita. We have a great show for you today. I'm really um, excited about it. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really cool, and we have a guest, Um who used to be one of us, and now it's uh, one of us. <laughs> and now she's like past that. So, so it's by exciting. one of us, you mean graduate student? Graduate student, yeah, here at Mizzou, and now she's like successful. an adult, an adult, yeah. and successful, and you know, I'm living the life. <laughs> In other words, we're jealous. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, just a real. Uh, real quick, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on our Facebook page where we are The Big Electron, or you can email us at thebigelectron.kcou at gmail.com. So with that, Anahita, do you want to introduce our guest? Um, as was previously mentioned, we have with us a real adult human, um, <laughs> <laughs> former graduate student. So now Dr. Emily Puckett. Welcome, Emily. Hi. Hi. Um so why don't you start by telling us what is it that you do as a real adult human? <laughs> I'm currently a postdoc at Fordham University. In, uh, so Fordham's based in the Bronx, but I work at the Biological Field Station in Armonk, New York. And um, my research is about phylogeography and demography of wide-ranging species. And right now I'm working on a project on brown rats and how they... Um, got out of northern China and Mongolia and are now one of the most globally invasive species, um, and they're found everywhere. So we are using phylogeographic um, techniques and um, genomics to understand the routes of range expansion over the last couple thousand years. So that's my day job, but you guys have me on to talk about my side project on Endangered Species Act. Yes, endangered on the Endangered Species Act. So um, it's my understanding that that act uh, was enacted by the Congress in 1973. Yes. So what is going on? What's your side project about? What's happening <laughs> with this act? Uh, so at Mizzou, I was part of the um, Science and Policy Certificate Program that's run out of the Public Policy Department. And I had to take all these extra classes, not really a big deal. 
And one of the classes that I took was Endangered Species Policy and Management. And as part of that, um, I worked with the professor that taught the class, Dylan Kessler, and we were talking after class one day about how we were both interested in the Warranted But Precluded Clause of the Endangered Species Act. So the Warranted But Precluded Clause is um, species are uh, suggested for candidacy, and then if they're warranted for candidacy, that usually moves them into a pool of other species that the agency, Fish and Wildlife Service, needs to make a determination about their status within 12 months. But because Fish and Wildlife Service has so many species that they're trying to make determinations on, they will use the warranted but precluded um, category to delay making those decisions. And so Dylan and I were talking and we thought, well, no one's ever really put numbers to how long species are waiting before they're listed. And we, as very quantitative people, we decided that we should do that. And that's what we did. Well, that absolutely makes sense to me. And I, I can assume that, I guess I, I assume that, um, you would hope is what I'm trying to say <laughs> that the species that are being kind of delayed aren't ones that are as threatened, but that's not necessarily true, is it? It's kind of hard to tell. So um, up until this year, actually, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service has, they do have a prioritization scheme. So uh, when a species gets warrant, is, is considered warranted for listing, they'll be assigned a priority number 1 through 12. And you have to remember, like, 12 still means they think that they should list the species as threatened or endangered of extinction. So just because you get a low priority score doesn't mean that that species shouldn't eventually be listed. But they do try to list the 1s ones, ones through 3s more quickly than the 4s through 6s. Um, but... There's, no one has actually done a study to look at how priority scores on species move, like, do the ones move faster than the twos, faster than the threes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, if someone's interested, that would be another way to quantify um, how the Endangered Species Act is working in practice. So as it stands right now, um, if I'm a, a rare animal, I might go up to... Um, the uh, which, which department is actually uh, oversees enforcement of the the uh, Endangered Species Act? Both uh, commerce as well as the interior. Okay, hmm. so so if I'm a rare animal species, I might go up to one of those departments and say, "I am very rare. Please put me on the list of endangered species so that I can be protected." And they may say, "Absolutely, go ahead," or they may say, "We'll get back to you in." some decades. Is that more or less accurate? Close. Um, So once a petition has been filed, uh, there are two different departments. So I said Interior and Commerce are both in charge of the Endangered Species Act because the Fish and Wildlife Service is under Interior and National Marine Fisheries Service, NMFS, is a division under, under the Commerce Department, and they are responsible for a portion, specifically the marine species, that can be listed under um, the ESA. Okay. And that's why they're the two different um, 
departments. So, but once a species is petitioned, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service usually has 90 days to make a determination whether they're warranted, not warranted, or warranted but precluded. If they're not warranted for listing, then they fall out of the process. That's it. They're done. But if they're warranted, then they move on to this re uh, review phase where the service has 12 months to make a determination on whether they should be listed as, or excuse me, actually, they have 12 months to write a proposed rule on whether they should be li listed as threatened or, in or endangered. And then after a proposed rule is written, they have another 12 months to finalize that rule and publish it in the Federal Register and make that final determination whether they should not be considered anymore, be listed as threatened, or be listed as endangered. So overall, the process takes um, more than two years. Um, what we found in our study is that out of the 1,338 species that we uh, were able to obtain data for over the last 40 years, the median time for that listing process is 12.1 years. So it's not um, acting as efficiently as we would hope, even given Fish and Wildlife's own rules. Wow. So we would definitely want to know a little bit more about which uh, which species get fast-tracked and actually beat that average time, and which ones are there even longer than that, and just what, what holds up the process for so long for all these various species. Yeah, and we looked at that um, a little bit, and in terms of the factors that we have that we observed affected process time, we saw that taxon is one of the factors that affects it. So it's, it, there's a long history in ESA research where people are like, we think vertebrates get listed faster. And we definitely saw that in our results. So reptiles get listed the fastest, followed by fishes, mm. then birds, amphibians, and mammals. Um, and mm. then we start seeing um, invertebrates being listed, and then the slowest listings are usually for the flowering plants. That said, there are like 850 flowering plants listed in our data set, so it took up the bulk of the data. And there's some, uh, it has a confounding factor because a lot of the flowering plants were um, originally petitioned in 1975 by the Smithsonian, and they fell off as a big, they went on to the candidate list as a big group, and then they fell off as a big group in 1978, where some administrative policy removed most of, I think, 1,800 species from the list, and then over time, those flowering plants were relisted. And so the way we did the analysis, the flowering plants have really long process times, um, but they were also early identified as being potentially imperiled and needing protection under the ESA. So can you um, speak a little bit about what protection exactly is provided once you're on the list? There are a number of protections. Uh, the biggest one that we think about is protection from take. So um, that really means just not killing or taking uh, plants or animals out of their natural habitat. And ultimately it means that the land that they live on is protected um, often from development or other projects that might impact species' ability to live on the land. Mm -hmm. But there are some other um, protections. I don't 
always remember them off the top of my head, but one is that, one of the big ones that we talk about is how other government agencies, um, it's called consultation, so other government agencies can, when an, a species is identified on a piece of land, especially government property, um, the, the other agencies then work with interior or commerce to help protect or mitigate impacts to the endangered species. And so once you get ESA protection, then you start to get um, uh, like mitigation through consultation. Mm -hmm. another, another one is immediately after listing, uh, species are supposed to have a um, critical habitat designated. Mm -hmm. And so what that is is it's kind of like a range map saying, well, these are the areas Across the, across the United States that this species is found and should be protected as a way to protect the species. And then once critical habitat is designated, which doesn't actually in practice happen for all species, but another really big way that the ESA listing helps is that now that species is eligible for recovery funding. And so a dedicated recovery plan can be written for the species to try to mitigate impacts and bring up population numbers and or establish new populations. And because as we, we want both the number of individuals and populations to increase as well as the range of individuals in new populations to increase so that we have reserves of these species. And all of that takes money mm -hmm. and dedicated planning by lots of conservationists on the ground, both in the government as well as in NGOs and private entities. And so listing enables both a recovery plan to be written as well as now that species is eligible for recovery funding provided by the federal government. So how much how much research is it needed to in order to say this one species is endangered? Um, like how do you get to that point where you want to list that specific species? Yeah, there are um, criteria that a species has to meet, and they're laid out. There are five criteria and objects, and I think you have to meet three or four. So you can show that, like empirically show that population numbers have been declining over time. You can show that uh, I come from a genetics background, so I'm very interested in our, the genetics of specific populations or specific species, are they very unique um, in terms of maybe they might represent a distinct lineage within a species that we would want to protect, or, or is the species one of the last remaining species on a, on a branch uh, of a phylogenetic tree, and we might say that that's distinct enough that we really want to protect that diversity. Um, so there's a genetic component that can be considered, population size that can be considered, um, the amount of habitat that a species occupies, so has the range shrunk a specific amount, can be another criterion. So there are different ways that species get to a listing, and they don't have to be the exact same, but as you pointed out, there's definitely research by um, both the government state and federal agencies as well as um, university researchers and NGOs that can go into making these these determinations. 
So going going back to the to the genetics, I know you're not a um, you didn't study this for with the genetics purpose, but um, how I don't know if you can you can answer this, but how would you know if this is an endangered species based on you know wanting to conserve the genetic material that this specific species has, or it's just uh, evolution that is happening. Is there a way to differentiate between those two, or is it more complicated than just those two? Um, I guess I don't quite understand your question, only because evolution is what the pattern of divergence processes that have allowed different species to arise. Um, but whether okay. other species within you know, a certain branch of a tree have already gone extinct and that this is the last one, and if we lose a species, we also lose a genus, mm-hmm. we could use genetics for something that puts, puts that level of diversity into a broader context. Okay, gotcha. So it's not like we can compare the two because they're totally different things. Um, or they're kind of the same thing in a way. Right, except that... When it comes to endangered species, it's like a little bit, you don't necessarily have to call evolution for it, ish. <laughs> you have to invoke evolution to, or, or look at evolutionary distinctiveness to determine whether it's an endangered species. There, maybe there are lots of species on this particular branch of a tree, but the population size of one specific species has dropped and it would still okay. be considered endangered. So again, there are just a bunch of different ways and different metrics that you can use or that the government uses to make these determinations. Gotcha. So how did you pick which species you used for your study? We wanted to use all of the species that were available. We did have to drop um, a couple hundred. So we dropped everything, the 102 species Uh, Let me back up a step. Because our analysis was unique in that we looked at species that had already been listed. Um, So if they, um, if they're current candidates, we didn't consider those. So if we start with all the species that have been listed, that gives us a finite set. We dropped all the foreign species because they're listed under a different process. So if CITES lists them, then the United States as a CITES member lists them also. Um, so those those get dropped out early. And then we dropped out the 102 species uh, covered by National Marine Fisheries Service because we just wanted to focus on, they have a slightly different process than mm-hmm. Fish and Wildlife Service, and we just wanted to focus on that Fish and Wildlife Service process. So we, we dropped those, and then we dropped things with weird designations. So there are species in experimental populations, species that are protected because they look like an endangered species. Um, Hmm. And so we dropped some of those strange categories, and that's how we got down to the 1,338. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. So I have, um, I guess it's not exactly about the study. (laughs) Uh, My question is, what is your favorite endangered species? My favorite endangered species. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, I studied bears at Mizzou, so um, I studied American black bears, um, which have populations that are listed. And 
but I would, I'll just go with grizzly bears and polar bears. <laughs> That's a good. That's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. You, you mentioned. Uh, Very close <laughs> yeah, you mentioned uh, uh, back at the beginning of the interview that you're currently working on um, a study about how rats came to be spread out over the whole earth. I, I just want to double check. There's no chance that bears could do that, is there? Because that would be really scary. Uh, well, bears are on most continents. Um, they're in Europe, Asia. North America, South America. There are none currently in Africa. There are some populations in the Middle East, so Western Asia. They're not in Antarctica, but rats really, like, jumped on ships and our transportation sh systems, and we, we gave them a ride all around the world. But <laughs> bears, I think we might notice those guys. Okay, okay. I'm a little bit relieved, uh, although it does sound like they've already made it over most of the Earth, so it may be too late already. <laughs> yeah. So I have uh, one one question that we generally start the interview with is um, how how did you get into science? How so? So you study. You said um, it, this was the endangered species was your side project. Then you studied genetics uh, while in grad school. How did you how did you end up uh, studying genetics? Yeah. Um, I have wanted to be a scientist. I mean, the first time I remember was, like, kindergarten. And I would check out the same zoology book, like, every week. And at some point I figured out that I was going to have to hurt animals. So then I wanted to study plants, and that's actually what I did. So my um, bachelor's degree is in botany, and my master's degree is in plant physiology. And somewhere during my master's, I figured out I was really good at um, bench work and, and molecular biology, and it was my first exposure to conservation. I was like, ooh, conservation genetics sounds awesome. And so I eventually contacted my um, advisor at Mizzou, Lori Eggert, and um, she was like, I've got this project on bears. Are you interested? And I was like, I'm species agnostic. I just want to do conservation genetics. And it ended up being an amazing project. And we did the phylogeography of American black bears all across North America. And, you know, I, I'm i happy to work on plants. I'm happy to work on animals. I might be happy to work on fungi. I'm not sure. Haven't done that yet. But maybe not inverts. I think they creep me out too much. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I've just really wanted to be a scientist my entire life and just not really ever thought of anything else. That's such a great story. <laughs> so uh, this is kind of off topic, but on topic. Did you ever have zoo books as a kid? I had all the zoo books. <laughs> What's a zoo book? No, I'm, I'm not familiar oh with Oh my God, zoo books, you were missing out. There are these like magazines and each like, if I remember correctly, each like month you got like a book about one animal. And like it was just you got stickers and like you got to learn all about that animal. It was so cool. Jeez, I want that now. Oh yeah. I'm looking up if you can still order them right now. <laughs> I think my zoo books, one of um in seventh grade I had to do a project on the common hippopotamus and I like pulled out my zoo books and that was like where I got like all my information <laughs> for this massive project. As massive as seventh grade gets. <laughs> I did a slideshow to 
a song about hippopotami, and my nice. mom like made slides, like sh- like chunk slides of, <laughs> um, of all the pictures from zoo books of hippos, and it was the best. That's awesome. This sounds pretty neat. I'm going to get some zoo books as soon as I can. Yeah, we're going to have to hook you up yeah. with zoo books. I'm de- delaying my childhood here. So, <laughs> so uh, going going back to to the uh, the endangered species, uh, the study that you did, is there, I know it was just recently uh, published. How, um, what, what do you hope uh, that this study shows and in changes in the field and changes in the way that certain species take 12 an average of 12 years to get to um, become an endangered species what it's kind of like that the output that that you would like to to have out of this study if a policy if policy readers and people that are in a position to make decisions, read our paper, and change the way that things are going, that would be amazing. I don't, I I think that that's kind of um, wishful thinking, because I think our results are really neat, but, and these numbers haven't been out there before, but I think the ideas that we put forth have been out there for decades. So, you know, the biggest policy prescription that we suggest in the discussion is more money for the for the ESA listing process. So ESA listing is a receives a line item is a line line item budget item. And the Government Accountability Office has reviewed the ESA not just the listing portion but also critical habitat and recovery programs multiple times. Um, and one of their reports says that 90% of the, the listing budget goes to staff. And Whoa. so we, we're sitting here saying, well, if you have a backlog of 250 species that need decisions and need people to read this data that's out there or make requests for data, synthesize the data, write all the legalese proposal rules and final rules that need to be to be done to complete this process, why don't you just hire more people? Like, but to hire more people, if 90% of the budget goes to staff and meaning goes to their salaries, then we see increasing that line item to hire more staff as a way that these things might be able to be done more quickly. Um, and so I would say that this is something that we suggest, but it's certainly not a new idea as it's been as more money for these early steps in the ESA listing process could have a significant impact for uh, getting species the protection that we think they need and hopefully decreasing extinction in American endem- endemic species. And But the, our other big result that we haven't um, talked about yet is what we found related to lawsuits. So lawsuits have gotten, um, there are some conservation organizations that will sue the government to um, force the government to make decisions on 
species that are essentially stuck in the process. And this has gotten a lot of pushback from uh, people or organizations that are frankly anti-ESA or organizations who claim that this removes um, authority from Fish and Wildlife Service. But what our results show is that if you look, if you think of it as in terms of process time, so step one is get having a warranted petition um, occur, and then the second step should be having a proposed rule written. So what's the process time between those two steps? That's what we are analyzing, number of days between steps. Well, if you look at something without a lawsuit, and then, in, then you look at the set of species where a lawsuit was inserted in the middle of those two time points, Mm -hmm. because um, an organization just saw that the species was stuck in the process, we see that the, the process time extends. And it's not because the lawsuit extended the time. It's because the species is, I mean, I keep saying it's stuck in the process because that's what we found. <laughs> we found that lawsuits help species get unstuck from the process, especially these um, warranted but precluded categories where they just sit year after year after year without any decisions being made um, about the species. So we're really hoping that these results show that, that these lawsuits that are happening um, and continuing actually have a function and that they're not, they're not frivolous things that environmental groups are doing, that they really do help um, move endangered species closer towards the protection that we think they deserve. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a really big topic to think about. Um, it is a really big topic. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say thank you so much, Emily, for joining us today and giving us a lot to think about, at least me. I think everyone. Well, okay, I, good. <laughs> I appreciate um, you guys being interested in the work and um, thank you so much for having me on. Again, that was Dr. Emily Puckett. Um, we're going to go on a short musical break, and we'll be back on KCOU. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCOU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. Real quick, before we go back to the science, I think we should um, address the fact that Madeline's not with us today. But it's because of don't, a really happy don't event. Don't say it, that's sad. Gee, sounds doom and gloom. I know. Well, I'd like to, you know, surprise everyone by saying she's not here because she got married yesterday. So congratulations to Madeline. Congratulations. We're really happy for you and your new husband Simon. Mm-hmm. So yeah. enough of that. Back to the. <laughs> So that's why she's not here. She has a, a very good reason to not be here. So congratulations to Madeline and Simon. Okay, so uh, back to the topic of endangered species. Mm -hmm. I have some bad news for you guys. What's that? I feel have like you guys, have all you guys news seen, in this world. Have like, you guys seen the movie? The B movie? No. The animated the movie? The animated movie. No, I haven't no. Oh, my God. Neither one of you. No. Oh, then there's no point to this story. <laughs> there's no point at all to talking about this thing because it the two people in the room here, other than yourself, have not seen the movie. If that if that's enough to disqualify this story from being worth telling, I'm concerned that it I'm might done. not have been. <laughs> I know the premise that a woman falls in love with a bee. No, 
I thought that was the premise. That's not the premise. The premise (laughs) is showing people that bees are important. And, and if they decide to go on a strike, the whole world suffers from it. Why did I think oh. that was the premise? <laughs> because she can talk to the bee. And does she fall in love with no! him? No! Okay. <laughs> I just assumed Why? it was a monster. I don't know. How, how would that have worked? Just... Well, I made fun of it a lot. <laughs> I mean, well, you I'm never just thinking watched like. the movie. I can make fun terms. of a lot of things that I've never seen. I mean, I can't imagine that movie going over well with the general public. Yeah. I mean, that's, but I know Seinfeld was the B. That's all I know. Yeah. So I knew that. But apparently it's about, <laughs> <laughs> apparently it's I'm about how important, both of you. apparently it's about how important bees are, which. Yes. There's very, they're very important. They so, are. Well, you ruined my joke, so I'm not going to say anymore. <laughs> Unfortunately, speaking of bees, uh, since we were talking about endangered species and endangered species act, uh, there are seven yellow-faced bee species that are native of Hawaii that have been listed listed as protected under the Endangered Species Act. They are now seven bees. Seven, seven bee species from Hawaii that are endangered, which are the first ones for any bees in the United States. Hmm. That is really sad. Mm-hmm. That's troubling. Indeed. Um, so this was uh, initiated by a nonprofit organization um, that is involved in petitioning uh, uh, bee uh, species. Um, so this one was uh, initiated by this nonprofit um, that is based in Portland, Oregon, uh, and they worked with scientists from uh, Hawaii that are uh, with an entomologist from Hawaii that has been doing research on bees for almost 10 years. Uh, so she said it took about, uh, he said it took about 10 years to get to this point. Um, so it's good to see it, to see it come up. Not good. That they're listed as endangered. Right. Good that people are now noticing. So why does that matter? Well, bees pollinate flowers. Bees pollinate plants. Right. And so this, the yellow-faced bees, which are the ones that are now listed as endangered, uh, pollinate some of Hawaii's endangered native plant species. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Well, when you see a bee buzzing around yourself and you swat it away, think twice. Uh, Especially if you're in Hawaii. (laughs) Yes, Uh, pretty much. Because uh, if the bees that pollinate these plants uh, become extinct, then those plants also become extinct because they cannot be conserved anymore. Um, So, Well, I was like, when I first heard, and it's, it's been a while, as you said, this has been a topic that's been around for a while. It's just mm-hmm. now getting to more dire levels. But I always wonder, like, people are afraid of bees. For some reason. For some reason. I mean, bees, if you got stung by a bee. Because they sting and they hurt. Yeah, but you have to, like, make a bee mad at you. I don't know. <laughs> Adam, are you are you a bee hater? I'm hiding, I'm hiding some... <laughs> Some terrible scars from childhood. Uh, here. <laughs> um, I was also it. stung by bees while I was walking along the river, but so you I, know. I've only been stung by a bee once, and I was an adult, and I didn't know. 
for a while. <laughs> Until huh. it was like, oh, swallowing or what? Until I was like, oh, there's a thing in, oh, that's a stinger. Okay. <laughs> I will say, I did get sting, uh, now that you mentioned it, I, I did get stung by a bee once as an adult. I remember it quite clearly, and I noticed it. <laughs> oh, I didn't notice. It hurts. So I guess yeah. if I had, like, a more traumatic experience. But, but yeah, it's like these things, these animals, these things, these animals that people fear more are more likely to go endangered or extinct without any kind of, um, repercussions like nobody is is upset about it so sharks yeah. is another example um they, shark like fit, the... sharks are hunted for their fins but because people think sharks are these aggressive super dangerous and every beach has one that's just waiting to kill you kind of animal people are okay more okay with it going endangered but that ruins the you know ecosystem mm-hmm. the local ecosystems yeah. so so the threat that these bees are facing it's um not necessarily only humans. Um, the threats actually come from feral pigs, invasive ants. That is surprising. <laughs> and uh, loss of native native habitat due to invasive plants, uh, fire, and also development, uh, especially in some of the coastal areas of, of Hawaii. So, yeah, it's not it's not good because these are important for other endangered species, in this case, the plant species. What's even more sad is that uh, this petition not only included the seven species of bees, but it also included um, a uh, three other animals that are specific to Hawaii, plus 39 species of plants that are native to Hawaii. Wow. So that's quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite a bit. Um, and... Something else that is um, a, a little tidbit, um, the rusty-patched bumblebee uh, that is found across the U.S., uh, the continental U.S., that is, um, it's also being considered for protection. So hmm. not only stuff in Hawaii, but also here. So does it say what the feral pigs are doing to the bees? Hmm. That's a really weird connection to me. Do you think they're eating them? Well, maybe eating like their hives. Or, or eating the plants. Or eating the plants, the plants. That, yeah, that, that they need. Do pigs eat uh, plants? I think they do. I, I don't know. I assume that a feral pig will eat anything. I think they eat everything. Yeah. Yeah. Because they could be eating the plants of the bees. Yeah, like because you could put perhaps. like a human body in front of a pig and they'll eventually eat it, right? That's like the whole. I did not know that. Thank you for that image. Oh, I'm sorry. Like I don't know. Someone maybe I shouldn't talk about this anymore. No, Never let's just mind. say Moving feral on. pigs, <laughs> ants, loss of native habitat, fire, and development are causing the endangerment of these uh, Hawaii native bees. So we got to be in the lookout for that. Um, and as Emily was saying, you know, there's there's a lot of things that are still on the list. Um, so well, at least they got these ones that are that are good. So sometimes. Uh, it takes a long time for us to really recognize how important an animal is if we don't necessarily like them. Yeah. Like, you know, some somebody might just think, well, I don't want to be stung by a bee, so I'm not really all that concerned about them. But then you have to think past and realize, well, I like to eat, mm-hmm. and bees uh, help with that. And uh, we can't really we can't really get rid of them and still expect to eat, at least not in the same way and the same stuff. Right. That we did, for example. Also, I like Hawaii to look pretty, like Hawaii. Um, but um, 
even being a super charismatic species that all humans love and think is great mm -hmm. and want to keep around, even that sometimes isn't enough uh, to do the trick mm -hmm. and just automatically guarantee a species will be fine. And uh, for an example of that, I'm going to refer to this month's National Geographic magazine, which uh, has a feature story on rhinoceros. Um, there's only about 30,000 rhinoceros left in the world wow. on this planet. Or, uh, based on in the world on this planet? I'm, I'm <laughs> rephrasing it in a different way. It's, it's poetic. Uh, okay, it's not. It's gibberish. It's what I'm, it's what I'm doing. Um, You're making it more splashy. I'm, I'm stalling for time. In the world. <laughs> I'm in the world. There you go. I, you do much better than that, I do. That's how I stall for time so that I can scroll through and find, <laughs> find the data Don't I was looking for. Don't tell the listeners your trick. It's, <laughs> the magician never reveals the trick. Uh, well, <laughs> oops. Um, okay, so, so there are only 30,000 rhinos in the world. Yeah, and 70% of them or so are found in one country, and that's South Africa. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, as, and, and again, a I'm, lot. Of, are, there other, are there other ones like rich people getting them? Hmm? How's that? <laughs> like, 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 as, the, the, like as pets? As pets? Yeah, like the, the other 25% of, of no. the, oh, that's a good question. the rhinos. I would, have, I I would have assumed so. zoos, but <laughs> rich people's pets. I, I, right, I, I can actually answer that question. Okay. Uh, so, um, 6,000. 200 of South Africa's rhinos are privately uh, wow. owned. That wow. is, they're, they're privately kept. Not necessarily as pets. Uh, oh, some so, of them, so it could be like at the zoo or something like that? Well, yeah. Uh, okay. Photographic safaris, legal hunting, oh. horn oh. production. Uh, that is, oh. they, they can actually take part of the horn and it will regrow if it's done Oh, like a correctly. lizard. Kind of, yeah. Um, and breeding. So this, there's a portion of these rhinoceros are are privately kept, mm -hmm. and okay, uh, not not for pets. Not uh, for there, pets there are some species that are made to be endangered by the pet trade. That sort of thing does happen. It's kind of hard for me to imagine a rhinoceros being a good pet in your home. Uh, I think my apartment complex has a no rhinoceros policy, for example. Are you sure? Mine allows I'm not rhinoceros positive. It might and not cats, be, but no dogs. Yeah, it might not be in the lease. I wonder if we could get our hands if on a rhinoceros and, and bring it. But, I will say it actually is in my lease. I'm not allowed to have exotic pets. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, you know, it might say that in mine too. I should, I should double check that before I enact my rhinoceros. It plan. only takes one person um, to ruin it for <laughs> So, So... So it's what's happening these, with, with the rhinos. Well, the thing is, just because they're charismatic and awesome and really neat to see, and there's people who even will go on safaris just to you know pay money to see these, uh -huh. you'd think that would do the trick, but not necessarily, because right. they have another aspect of themselves, which is even, even more demand, and which people are willing to pay money for, which is their horn. In some parts of the world, in particular East Asia, um... The uh, the horn is powdered. It's ground into a powder and then used in various uh, concoctions as a medicine. And so if you are under the belief that powdered rhinoceros horn can fix all sorts of medical issues, ranging, well, from, issue. ranging from cancer to hat hair, I, I don't really know what uh, lesser conditions they are, but uh, there's even belief that it can cure uh, cancer, cancer and other severe 
Hmm. Yeah, you know, and this is mostly in East Asia, you say? This is mostly in China and Vietnam. Okay. Hmm. Um, formerly, it's been, it's had an even wider range. There uh -huh. were people who would buy powdered rhinoceros horn in Japan and South Korea and uh, Taiwan also. And those countries have, for the most part, cracked down on the trade okay. in this material. The crackdown against buying this illegal powdered rhinoceros horn is still ongoing in those other two countries, uh -huh. in China and Vietnam. So uh, there are still as illegal trade, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, poaching of these endangered rhinoceros uh, to collect their horn illegally. So, yeah, this is some... Uh, some dangerous stuff. So yeah, there's, absolutely. There's, it's, it's like endangered species, and then you're like further making it worse by trying to collect this their horns that then turn into powder for whatever. Yeah, it's just incredible in a lot of ways. I mean, just mm -hmm. one one aspect is just that there's this demand for the product for of it, an endangered right. species halfway across. <laughs> Halfway across the earth compared to where the animals themselves actually exist. Mm -hmm. So we humans can be big, yeah, big clompy creatures sometimes, can't we? So. Thanks, globalization. <laughs> yeah. Alhita, do you have more sad stories for us? I do. I do. No, I don't. I have a great story, actually. Okay, awesome. <laughs> um, so there is this animal that is... Adorable. It is so adorable. <laughs> they it is, call it they call it a pangolin or the artichoke with legs. It it's an anteater type of animal. Wait, what's what's their real name? Pangolin. P A N G O L I N. Okay. And so it it's often called the artichoke with legs. It's an anteater, but it has these protective scales on it. And which doesn't sound very adorable, but if you should Google it. You it's have to Google it. It's so, so cute. cute. <laughs> and it's, uh, I would say, the cutest animal you've never heard of before. And so the pan pangolin is a mammal um, that whose uh, conservation status is critically endangered. Um, sometimes it's vulnerable, but that's, you know, pretty bad. You're almost fully too endangered. And uh, what... It is the most trafficked animal of all time, which is a really, what? yeah, because you've never heard of it. You wouldn't expect that. But the reason why it's so heavily trafficked is um, because it's used in some cultures. Well, it's eaten in some cultures, I should say. And it's prized for its scales, which is considered a traditional medicine um, in some cultures. And then also it's a luxury item that's eaten in in celebration, pretty much. That's Eden? Eden. In celebration. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you, let's say, close a business deal that was really profitable, uh -huh. you would celebrate by eating. Like instead of eating like a big steak, you would right. eat pangolin. You, you would, would eat this adorable. This critter. adorable, defenseless creature. Where is this done? <sighs> um, where, so there's eight species of pangolins, and four are in Asia, and four are in Africa. And it's in... Um, it's in Chinese culture, the China highest. and Vietnam, that it's considered uh, a luxury item. And, uh, and well, basically the Chinese pangolin has been like wiped out because of it. Exactly. So now they're, they're getting, now there was a trade with the other species from around the world. Right. So the, this, this is really sad, but the good news okay. is that there's been a top trade production. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's not the word. 
protection, a top trade protection. So delegates um, from the International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora voted to approve the strictest trade protections under international law for the pangolin. So it is completely illegal for anyone to try to sell or trade a pangolin, which is really great because it was... It was not regulated before? It was not regulated at all, and that was what was letting it become this luxury item. Okay. And so now it's regulated, and hopefully we can... uh, Crack down. Yeah, crack down and kind of correct this killing of this little animal. It's so cute. (laughs) And I mean, when it's scared, it just rolls up into a ball, and you're like, your scales aren't going to protect you from being eaten. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to hug them all. Okay. Keep it safe forever. So it's really good that there's this. It's, okay, trade it's protection. good that this happened. Uh, so this is. A I case. didn't know this. This thing existed. Yeah. The international trade in endangered species of wild fauna in Florida or sites. Yes, and so it was. The meeting was called the Convention on International oh, Trade okay. in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora or Cities. Cities. Of sites, site, yeah, sites. <laughs> <laughs> I added an extra I. And this, this, is, this came from the World Conservation Congress. Yes. Cool. Well, are, at least there are like people watching out for that. Right. It's a case of uh, policy helping science. Mm-hmm. So it's along the lines of international in this case. Yes. That, that it will involve multiple countries. So. Yes. Okay, well, that's that's good. So yeah, we're. I mean, on a we good talked point. about endangered species. Now this one is an endangered species. But hopefully it won't be soon. Hopefully it won't be soon. Um, yeah. Okay. And so there have been other animals that have been um, under the same type of protection that, uh-huh. you know, have a much higher profile. So like rhinos and elephants, things we kind of know have been hunted, have been on this list before. And and we've seen positive change from mm-hmm. that. Um, so it's... It's kind of like this was done a little earlier for the pangolins, so they're mm-hmm. hoping to correct it faster. Okay. Speaking of of good news, um, I think what a lot of us know is pandas. Pandas wear uh, yeah the WWF endanger- logo. <laughs> uh huh. Endangered species. Well, actually, they were just um, downgraded. From endangered to vulnerable. That's because awesome. Because the population of the giant panda uh, grew by 17% from 2004 to 2014. Um, wow. That is great. Yeah. Pandas yeah. are notoriously picky mm-hmm. about uh, breeding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So, um, you know, they've been since... The 1970s, they've been fo- they've been the main focus of you know these campaigns and endangered species, um, but yeah, when when they became and, and people started actually acting on it, um, now in in, t- in ten years, the population has risen by 17 percent, which is great, and now they were downgraded That's from endangered percent. to vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So. Um, that's some good news there. Um, some species are getting put into the list. Some others are being uh, lowered down. So so that's awesome. Yay, pandas. Yay. Uh, and with that, we're going to conclude our show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you are listening to The Big Electron. Have a good evening. <laughs>